This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. My guest today is Dr. Cameron Thompson. He is the author of the original Benedict Option Guidebook. Um, and today we're going to be talking about the Benedict Option, uh, Rod Dreher's famous book and the uh, movement or idea that is derived from that book. And in discussing it, we're going to be drawing on uh, the original Benedict Option guidebook and also two articles that I wrote, uh, which have been recently published, and links to all three of those will be available in the show notes. Uh, Welcome, Cameron. I'm so glad to have you joining me today. Thank you, Malcolm. It's great to be here. So, uh, Cameron, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, background and how you became interested in the Benedict Option? Yeah, um, you know, for starters, uh, for as far as the Benedict Option goes, for many years I was a, I suppose what you call a Benedict Option skeptic, uh, because like most Benedict Option skeptics, I'd heard a lot about the idea, mostly from critics of it, without ever having really delved into what Ron Rayer had to say, or even more importantly, what were the sources that he's drawing on for inspiration, because as I found later that that actually has, has uh, that fleshes things out a lot more. My background is generally in anthropology and psychology, specifically in Catholic studies. There's the study of Christian culture, the culture of Christendom, both in the European and other global variants throughout history. And uh, from the psychology angle, one of my research focuses is the formation of virtue and development of character within organizational systems, in other words, communities. And so with what I, with that particular background, when I approached, finally got around to uh, within the last, you know, probably about two years ago, uh, came around to really sitting down with the idea of the Benedict Option and delving into it. Uh, I should also mention that I have a long history with St. Benedict himself. I began reading the rule of St. Benedict and thinking about that, trying to apply that to my life from the time that I was very, very young as a child. And so bringing that to bear I, I actually cracked open Ron Dreher's book, and I might be reading into it a lot of the things from my own background, but I found there that I had radically misunderstood, and in my opinion, a lot of other people had, had also misunderstood and misconstrued what he had to say, or perhaps I would say there are things that we could correct in the way that he presents an idea by going back to the source, so the rule of St. Benedict itself, and also the rule of St. Benedict as fleshed out historically, culturally, in the way that somebody like Alistair McIntyre comments on it, from which draws, of course, which Rod Rare drew the inspiration for the title of the book in the first place. Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's certainly become a fairly contentious topic. I think part of the problem is that there are so many interpretations flying around. Um, it sometimes seems that the Benedict option can be almost anything. You know, everyone's projecting their own desired uh, projects and, and hopes onto it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the things that uh, struck me about when I was reading your book, uh, the original Benedict Option Guidebook, is um, your insistence on going back to actually learn from uh, Saint Benedict, as opposed to um, reading the Benedict Option through a lens of current political events. Yeah, I think there's a there's there's a perennial danger, and this is just true in in, in looking at any idea. This is part of my my professional background sort of academic or scholarly expertise, is there's a great mistake in reading things through the lens of our only our current circumstances. Certainly, in terms of the applicability, we need to know where we stand. 
but it's not as though St. Benedict was living in the same context that we're living in. And so, you know, we don't want to read the idea of what is monasticism about or what was going on, what was Christianity actually doing, uh, you know, that is to say individual people, Christians in the time of the late fall of the Roman Empire, you know, so really kind of almost after the fact, um, as that precipitates that whole process in different places, uh, there are certainly parallels, as, as Alistair McIntyre says, there are parallels between that time and our time in terms of the collapse of a dominant global power. That's something that we're starting to see crumble in our own day. But there's always a danger in drawing too close a parallel. Nonetheless, recognize that the parallels there are. Uh, and I think it's that's why it's important always to go back to the source itself and then draw from that as a spring, as a, as a wellspring to be able to be fed and see how downstream that can actually nourish us and redirect our course. Yeah, you know, um, one of the articles I wrote, uh, Rescuing St. Benedict from the Culture Warriors, mm-hmm. um, one of the dangers that I see in the way the Benedict Option is sometimes framed is that it's seen as a response to uh, the culture war, to the, the failure of conservatives to win the culture war. And um, that's fairly ironic because uh, Rod Dreher, in, in one way, sets out to de-emphasize the culture war mm-hmm. and to re-emphasize living the faith in, in radical communities. Um, but somehow the culture war narrative is so strongly embedded in American Catholic culture that it just absorbed the Benedict Option into it. It was like, well, now the Benedict Option becomes, since the culture war has failed from the conservative point of view, now the thing to do for conservatives is to build little, you know, forts or, or isolated caves where we can hide out so we can come back and fight again another day. Mm-hmm. And um, in that article, I um, enlarged on why that's a fairly disastrous perspective for um, living the Christian life and will only create trouble. Uh, because it has nothing to do, of course, with the way St. Benedict saw what he was doing in the original rule. Right. No, I think that was that's that's really good. I think that's that's one of the key points that needs to be emphasised in this kind of discussion is what you bring up there is sort of at least in the American context, uh, rescuing the Benedict Option from the culture warriors, because I think you're absolutely right. It's a mistake to see it as a a sort of a plan B, so that, you know, as often is the case that the the American conservatives uh, those who who consider themselves the culture warriors and and much of that milieu uh, take the Benedict option and become sort of the backup option instead. Having lost the culture wars, let's do this route. Let's pivot and do this instead. Whereas I think what you really flesh out in that article is that we should be viewing this as something fundamentally different. Whether or not Rod is successful at presenting it in that way, uh, there's there's perhaps pluses and minuses. But I think you've got a lot of good things to say about how we should view that instead. Yeah, you know, I think um, I think that. At least in my reading of the Benedict Option book, Rod Dreher's book, uh, definitely I think there are two intertwined narratives there. That he's writing it, of course, at a certain tumultuous point in American politics, and that tends to, to you know, like that narrative tends to creep in. At the other hand, um, in in my article, I quote one of my favorite quotes, two of my favorite quotes actually from the Benedict Option book itself, is um, one where he's quoting someone else saying the Benedict option, it's just being Christian, right? And another one where he quotes uh, Pastor Greg Thompson as saying, the moment the Benedict option becomes about anything other than communion with Christ and dwelling with our neighbors in love, it ceases to be Benedictine. It can't be a strategy for self-improvement or for saving the church or the world. So that's such a very, that's such a very inspiring, wonderful vision 
And then it's sad to see it overlaid by um, another much darker and more fearful uh, vision of, of the role of the Christian in the world. Right. One of the, one of the things I was thinking about is how uh, one of the dangers I think of connecting this to the culture war is that Christians have always needed radical community. Uh, I think that Christians too often have been lacking that sense of community. And it's not like we don't need community because the surrounding culture doesn't like us anymore. If indeed right. it ever did. Why, uh, why do you think, you know, in your study of Benedictine spirituality, why is community so important just to the Christian life in general? Well, it's so there's, there's two angles I'll come at it from. And that the one is, let's say strictly sort of Benedictine or even broader Christian monasticism. And the other is from a very just human psychological, human culture, moral development angle. So my two scholarly foundations, the professional, the, the world that I live in, in that way, from a Benedictine monasticism point of view, or just Christian point of view, we're made for community, uh, which is just true humanly, but specifically Christ didn't leave individual gurus to found unique schools of thought, um, but rather he founded a church, right? The, the church is, and the church is a continuation of his very body, his very presence. And so in that way, there's a certain kind of human community that itself becomes divinized. And that's what we refer to as the church. And, and this was understood in a much more intuitive way, historically, by the people, by, by the people, by members of the early church, by members of society outside of the church, uh, their contemporaries, uh, such that the way that we often think about what church means, or even what, I mean, this is, this is wrapped up really a lot with the whole problem of even our understanding of what it means to be a self or as an individual is born out of, out of some late 16th century, 17th century thinking that is sort of evolved in a certain way, what we might generally call uh, a radical individualism in terms of our philosophical anthropology. What, what do we think about ourselves as? And, and so we tend to think of human community in the modern West, mind you, this is not universal, so neither historically nor globally, but in the modern West, which is a global phenomenon, nonetheless, we tend to think of human community as an agglomeration of individual units that can't, um, that, that really have nothing to do with each other aside from a commercial transactional relationship. Um, whereas in traditional societies, and certainly for St. Benedict, and I would say that's fundamental to the human condition, is understanding that we really don't become a self apart from relationship to other selves. This is something that uh, Karol Wojtyla, that is Saint, uh, Saint Pope, Pope St. Paul, John Paul II, had a lot to say about as a philosopher and a theologian, that we really only become a self in communion with other selves. This is at the root of what Alistair McIntyre is talking about where he I mean, actually fleshes out in very thick, deep way, independent rational animals, but it presents in a very concise and comprehensive way in his book, After Virtue, the final chapter of which is, is of course, the inspiration for Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, at least the title of it, uh, that, that what the Benedictine monks did was not in reaction to the collapse of the civil political order, but, but to create human community because that's the natural response of the Christian because we can only live out our Christian life. Culture can only happen in the context of a living, breathing body, a community. I think it's interesting what you pointed out about just there about how, you know, Christians just intuitively understood themselves as communal because everyone was communal up until the modern world. And now that suddenly that's not a natural idea anymore, Christians have to start um, emphasizing that more as an intentional uh, decision to live communally mm -hmm. because, uh, yeah, without without being in community, we can't really be Christian. I mean, our faith 
we, we say that God himself is a community of persons, that we can't understand ourselves right. apart from relationship to God and others. And, um, and then what, uh, you know, p- part of uh, what I said in one of my other articles on Benedict option, mm-hmm. which um, I called the, the Benedictine Monastery and the Franciscan Field Hospital, mm-hmm. uh, I talked about how Pope Francis has this vision of um, reaching out in solidarity to those on the peripheries, those on the margins. And I tried to explain how that vision of Pope Francis could enrich an understanding of the Benedict option, because certainly a, ho- a certain kind of hospitality is a big part of Benedict's original uh, vision. Can you can you speak a little more about how you could see that relationship playing out there between that Franciscan, the Pope Francis idea of going out to the peripheries and um, Rod Dreher's idea or St. Benedict's idea of building uh, intentional Christian community? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's there's a couple of different ways we can look at reaching out to the peripheries. One is, in the most explicit sense that we may more immediately come to mind, is physically going out to to the places where uh, where the ragged people go, as Paul Simon says, uh, but to, uh, to to be out in and amongst somebody that we identify, which is just, I mean, that's an interesting thing to look at. It's our labeling somebody else as the poor, which, or the, the heathen to be evangelized. So I think there's a lot of self-reflection that could take place around that process of judgment, but that's going out to whomever it is to be reached out to and going out there, uh, sort of in a, you might say, a contemporary way, synchronous. I'm going up to somebody who, who exists now and trying to provide for their material needs, help them in some way, uh, at minimum express solidarity with them or to serve them or to, to be Christ to them, which uh, has its merits. I, I think there are certain uh, weak points in fleshing that out too far. And that that we've fallen prey to in the modern West as as Christians, so that in general, sort of theology has taken a turn towards individualism in that way, or towards an over identification of myself with Christ rather than myself with the, uh, you know, myself as the good Samaritan helping the poor guy, rather than identifying, which is the way the Church Fathers understood primaries, is to under identify ourselves as the person who's beat up on the road, and Christ is the good Samaritan coming to to, to rescue us. So I think there's perhaps uh, uh, an over tendency towards activism that we need to be attentive to. But that said, I think when you create any community, when you form something, that is to say, trying to live the gospel in a radical way alongside other people doing that, to, to really live it uh, together, to live it together, um, you, you will necessarily uh, attract people who are looking for something. And as a group, as a group of persons, as a community, you're able to meet those needs to some degree, but you're able to meet needs that you weren't able to meet as individuals uh, because providing community itself is something. Now, a community then, as a, if you will, as a corporate body, has a certain strength and availability greater than the sum of its members to be able to actually also provide for material needs uh, for other people. But I think it's important to move kind of beyond that step as well and to say that there's a, a longitudinal way over time, a sort of a non-synchronous dimension that we need to look at to say, I'm also, if we do something in a community, so if we create a community together, it's important to also be attentive to the future that I am, even if we're not explicitly going out in the way that a modern Western Christian might identify as missionary activity, 
the creation of community itself is laying the foundations for something good and true and beautiful to flourish, to provide something in the future. So in some ways that the people that I'm reaching out to, if I'm creating Christian community, is one in particular that I have in mind. They're really starting with nothing. They don't have anything uh, to to share explicitly with somebody or they're, they're not equipped as just, you know, three or four small families to go serve the poor. Uh, nor do they really have anybody who they would particularly label that as who is any different from them. But what they're doing is creating the foundations of something to serve their grandchildren, their great, great grandchildren, you know, the fifth and sixth generation of other people who will live in that area. You're beginning to create something new. And that's that's sort of the genius of the Benedictine approach. So you see uh, John Henry Newman, uh, he goes, he's, he's got this section of his works called the Benedictine Essays, and he examines sort of the Benedictine way. Those Benedictine centuries, as he calls them, were marked by a certain poetic way of life that bit by bit, step by step, the untamed forest became agricultural land. The, the, you know, the, the barren wasteland became a monastery and then a university and a village and a city. And eventually, you know, whole cultures and kingdoms grew out of that slow methodical work over time these Benedictines were not unmissionary but they were doing slow evangelization which is perhaps the only evangelization that's ever really worked your point about you know identifying someone as other and as uh, really a recipient of your own generosity is is perhaps a fatal flaw you know like the um certainly the god in the gospels we're told mm-hmm. we have to care for the poor i mean there's very few things that are more um more explicit actually but There is that danger that, as you're pointing out, that if you see yourself as, you know, the figure who swoops in and solves somebody else's problems, um, it's probably not going to work very well. Whether and this applies to people in community because we're all poor in different ways. We all have we're Mm -hmm. all flawed and broken. And if in a community, I remember listening to some priests talking about this about how they tried to build community among themselves, and if they went from it from a perspective of fixing all the other person's problems. Um, it would very quickly uh, become a disaster. Instead, this relational aspect of really seeing the other person. And in fact, that can be the deepest need of uh, those who are currently marginalized. Uh, I remember hearing about how, um, you know, like there's lots of lots of ways to provide services to people, and but it can be done in a very bureaucratic, um, cold and sterile way uh, without mm-hmm. if there's no community, if there's no relation behind it. I'm very inspired by uh, Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker. And one of the things she really emphasized was that um, if you're just acting as sort of like another service organization, there's no point. Like the government will always be able to do that better, really, uh, or some big corporation will be able to do that better than you can. But what the Christian can do, what the Christian should do is build community and build relation. Uh, I was talking to someone who, who works with homeless on the street and they said, you know, like they can't do a whole lot towards fixing their problems and there's resources out there. But one of the reasons that they sometimes don't go and, and access the resources that are available is because they don't realize their own dignity. They said oftentimes like they, their very name fades away because they never hear it. And therefore they said their job is to go and, you know, speak that name in love and to, to give them that kind of community, that relation that's so missing you know, that's so missing in the modern world, but especially perhaps for those who are materially poor, they can't fill that void with all the distractions that uh, the rest of us can, can do. So I'm thinking that about this, this idea of community, community itself is, is very, is very missionary, is very, has to like 
building community has to be an outreach. And but one of the things that I'd like to hear your perspective on and that uh, worries me sometimes is that it can only happen, of course, if that's kind of ingrained in the spirit of the community, that idea of reaching out. Instead of the idea, I think, I remember someone putting it as that like, that there's a, the, all the difference in the world between a clique and mm-hmm. a community, that a clique is gathering together with only with people like yourself. Yeah based on some fairly superficial identity, whereas a community will always be diverse by mm-hmm. almost by, by its very nature. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think it's absolutely right. And that's, that brings up another topic that I think I don't want to get us straight on now, but we should address uh, later is the, um, goodness, homogeneity in, in a community and the difference between a clique and a community, the like-mindedness versus, versus bringing others in together. Uh, but I think I think you're absolutely right. The the the, the to to hit on it, I think what you you almost said was that building a community itself. Really, I want to talk about forming or growing a community is itself pastoral, and, and it has to be. You need to have somebody or a few individuals that naturally in any group you're going to have the dynamics such that certain people tend to take the initiative. They tend to uh, step into the role of leadership, and and that is to say, leadership means when we understand it rightly. It means providing for the people in my charge, providing for these people what I can it, to, to the limits of my capacity. And and in doing that, you're creating something for those people. You're serving those people there. And so that's one dimension of it. And I think this is where we can have two approaches. One is to, and perhaps this addresses the idea of the clique versus the community too, is that St. Benedict never says in his rule, in his rule, in uh, Gregory's biography of him, is never mentioned anything about the sort of, sort of a mandate to be Christ to others. Rather, what Saint Benedict repeats again and again and again throughout the rule is to see Christ in others, see see the other as Christ, and that is the other monk in the mon. You know, for Benedict, very you know, in an explicit sense, the other monk in the monastery is to be seen as Christ to me. The abbot in his role of authority is to be seen as Christ, the authority to the authority of Christ to me. The, the pilgrim who comes to visit the monastery, the poor man who comes to beg at the monastery gate is to be seen as Christ. And so that for the life of the monk, and that is to say, if we want to think with the mind of the early church, that is to say the life of the Christian is to serve Christ unceasingly when I'm alone in my room, when I'm out in the field working, when I'm in my workshop, uh, you know, employing my tools, I'm doing this in the service of Christ, not just in a vague sense of is God is somehow involved in this and I'm doing this for his honor and glory. That's a later Jesuit idea, the merits of which can be weighed another time. But for Benedict, this is very much, this is meant to be understood as a sacral act. I'm participating in something. And when I encounter another person face to face, I am to serve them as Christ. That is a continuation of my service to Christ, my, a continuation of my worship of Christ. And that's a very different fundamental orientation. If my orientation is to serve Christ wherever I am, in whomever I see, that's very different from the idea of if I identify myself as Christ, if I think that the orient, my fundamental orientation is to be Christ to somebody else, well, then I want to draw people around me who I can also think level up to the level of Christ, you see. And then this becomes, I think that's where we begin to form cliques, is when we identify ourselves with the divine, 
who have to bestow something on other people or keep something. So it's up to us to bestow or to hold back. That forms cliques. But that's not really a Christian idea. That's a modern sort of innovation. There are certain strands of Christianity that, that have that and that have had that for a couple hundred years as their sort of primary theological thrust. But authentic, orthodox, apostolic Christianity of the of the church throughout time is to serve Christ, to be oriented to find and see Christ and serve him in those others. So now we are a community of poor people seeking to serve the Lord in whomever we encounter. And I might be called specifically to go out to people, or I might be called specifically to stay where I am, because as St. Benedict points out, and it's just, it's a true, it's a true observation, fact of the world. When you do something radical like this, especially in creating community, there will be no lack of people knocking on your doors for one reason or another. And so your process becomes one of discerning how you interact with the people that are coming incessantly to you. Uh, and, and Benedict recognizes that that's a reality for monastic living. They don't need to go out because people are already coming to them. That uh, reminds me of uh, in my uh, recent interview with uh, someone from Madonna House. They talked about yeah. how they've set up satellite communities across the world, usually just a handful of people in a house. And they don't like you. Some of them run soup kitchens and stuff, but only if they see a local need that isn't already being met by, you know, more um, well-funded organizations to do that. But they said mm-hmm. they offer sort of like a listening house. People, they're, just, hmm. they're just there for people to come in. And he said, people ask them, you know, like, really, is there enough to fill the day? And he said, there's never enough time to get through it. People are beating down the doors just to come and, and be able to sit and, and be welcomed and, and speak to someone who will love them. Um, and that, that's amazing to me um, and, and very beautiful. And I really like, too, that what you said about how, uh, you know, like seeing Christ in others. Because if we really do, even, of course, if that other is different, difficult, uh, challenging, um, yeah, it'll, it will work against the clique. It will work against the, the culture war in which, because, of course, like nobody's going, you know, like if there's a house full of culture wars, Nobody's going to want to go and, and sit and tell them all about themselves for sympathy because that's not what the culture warrior is known for. But if we see, if we do really see Christ in others, then yeah, uh, I was in my um, interview with Tim Keller from the City of the Lord community. He was talking about how the community will have uh, political and ideological differences inside of it, probably. And you can't let those differences. Uh, tear the community apart. He was he was insistent on having a culture of respect and honor, and of uh, of, mu- of yeah mutual respect, and then also forgiveness. As he said, like community members will hurt one another, but if there isn't that culture of honor and respect, which can be you know seen in seeing others as Christ, he said the community will not stand up. It will continue to break into smaller and smaller cliques until it disappears. In in the yeah, end, yeah, that's absolutely right. I think the uh, you know on, on that point of diversity within the community, I think an important thing in, in the formation of any community, really any any anything along these lines, is, I mean, I can speak specifically to like a Benedict Option community, is that one should take as your model not the intentional communities of the last two hundred years, the the self identified intentional communities and these movements to try and create something apart, but take as the model just a healthy functioning village, a traditional village. You've got a variety of different people. They've got personal conflicts and misunderstandings. They've certainly got different points of view. 
uh, on, on ways that local conflicts should be handled or resolved or new initiatives should be taken up. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a healthy functioning human community. And it's those, that kind of setting that Benedict takes sort of for his model, right, is, is a, a broad, a big extended family, you know, of the kind that maybe runs an hacienda uh, in the middle of the, 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 the Umbrian countryside. Not far. I mean, in fact, so I live in Italy right now. I live, I can see the hills where Benedict, you know, sort of did his thing from, you know, from the edge of the town that I live in. And, and to be immersed in this kind of environment has given me a much broader, richer understanding of what community can look like, at least if it's not fully vibrant and, you know, uh, fully expressed explicitly today. The, the way that the, the building, the way that the, the buildings, the city is laid out, the, the various amenities that are here, you get a sense for what real historical, authentic, living Christian community looks like and all the rites and celebrations that are part of that. Yeah, that's, that's a very uh, useful analogy, I think, because, yeah, the village, uh, I remember uh, it was G.K. Chesterton who actually said that the great city is narrow-minded because in the great city, there's enough of each type of person for them all to go to, you know, their own club and hang out with one another. Yes. In the village, there's there's one pub, everyone's there, and, and the arguments are terrific. But in the end, because they, you know, like they're all stuck in this village, like they, they're ha- they have to work mm-hmm. it out. They can't let difference uh, become division. And, and that's exactly. like, you know, like the, the Christian idea of unity and diversity, that difference mm-hmm. is beautiful and can be enriching because, you know, like, what what individual human or human institution can show forth the infinite wealth of God, right? But division is what kills when that difference becomes divisive. And on that uh, point, I want to move to actually talking about something from your book. You know, this this traditional kind of habit of community. You know, like we didn't have to have intentional community in times past. And in your book, you say that the social habit you call it of living in community has been mm-hmm. destroyed in the modern world. And so what is your, your perspective on how did that happen? And, and what can we learn from the process by which community was destroyed in the modern world? There are, there are, it's a long historical process. Um, but I think essentially we say what we, what we see is the, the rise of um, individualism, we say, the rise of an individualism and, and, and what would say is a philosophical liberalism. And by liberalism, I should clarify, if, insofar as I say that now or it comes up in the conversation, I'm not referring to, and I assume you, you, we're on the same page. We're not talking about the American left. We're talking about sort of the whole project from right. top to bottom, left, right, and center is is understood. Ev- almost everything within the modern context, modern world, is is philosophical liberalism. It takes the individual as sort of the locus of reality, um, and and varying degrees of individual will and commercial transaction, depending on your flavor of it. Um, but this sort of individualism, liberalism that comes with this pursuit of individual freedom, pursuit of individually fulfilled happiness as a goal, this kind of thing. Um, you know, all that didn't just arise in a vacuum. There are a lot of factors that contribute to that. But I think the best way, rather than getting lost too far in the details of sort of what contributed to what, there's certainly there are helpful things, especially those things, those actions that were taken that were intentional directives of various state bodies or organizational bodies, uh, various powers that took action in human society to break up community uh, as part of the Industrial Revolution, uh, that the general thrust of it is best understood by the first chapter or rather the, the, the prologue to Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, or what the, a, a, brief, a brief prologue that he, he simply calls a disquieting suggestion where he likens the state of the modern world 
in terms of our under even our very understanding of what morality means of what community means of what the self means is analogous to sort of this post apocalypse this this sort of post nuclear apocalypse world where all scientific knowledge has been destroyed and technology is gone and we're finding bits and fragments of like blueprints of things or you know a, a motherboard chip from a computer and we're trying to re-piece together all scientific knowledge preceding it he says that that's essentially the state of the modern world and he lays out sort of the history you know a, a hypothetical you know historical background as, as a, a fable if you will this is that that's really history that's a modern western history vis-a-vis -vis our understanding of human community of what we're talking about we're talking about morality or virtue or, commu or, or community which are all bound up together uh, and I think that's a helpful understand that that's a more helpful approach to direction from which to approach the question or the problem. Um, I will say that there historically there there have there were direct uh, actions taken again you know sort of anti-social anti-human act, actions taken by various bodies um, during as part of the industrial revolution. Essentially, you know, like in England, it's very common to to look at historically. The, the breaking up of the commons. That is to say, the common ground that was understood essentially within the village or the hamlets around a certain area. There's there's land that is shared, that is essentially free access for the people that are there to have the rights to that for grazing their sheep. It's a very simplistic sort of approach. And at some point, a landowner decides that he's going to break his sac his sacred relationship with the people who live on the land uh, that has been there for generations, for centuries, and has decided that he is going to pursue profit instead of human welfare and, and the good of society is going to pursue profit. And so he decides it's more beneficial to actually build fences across this to separate the people from each other so that he can then build a factory and draw them in to employment, slavery, some people have said, in the factory setting in order to then work, not for themselves, but to work for him for the profit motive. And that's essentially, that's in a nutshell, a simplistic version of the Industrial Revolution. And then there's governments that took similar initiatives and that kind of thing uh, along those same lines to, to further enforce in a social way, in a socio-political way, the radicalization of the individual separated from other individuals, uh, which is in part, if I may say so, why certain nations in the world uh, and in a particular way, the United States, but others within the so United States, I think, you know, Canada and Australia uh, are in a very similar boat. Uh, certain nations of the world have a much harder time in terms of their starting point on these questions than other nations, because culturally or historically, they've only ever been. So the United States was founded sort of in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. So the whole world of of, of the sort of the with the Western Hemisphere, Northwestern Hemisphere, North America is from within that context. Uh, and that's different from, say, somebody living in, I don't know, Turkmenistan or, uh, you know, Eastern Europe or even the Mediterranean here, that there are still, though those influences are felt, there's there's different foundations to stand on. And so there's not a global solution in the same way there wasn't a global cause, uh, but localism. Uh, there's There's got to be localized approaches to it to meet the various needs. Uh, given that, you know, the, the role of that economic change in destroying community, do you think that it's going to be important for Benedict Option communities going forward to really try to build a communal economic order uh, that they can share in? Absolutely. And not because it's somehow more robust against persecution. It's not necessarily more. I mean, if you're going to get persecuted, you're going to get persecuted. If they're going to come after you, you know, 
the pe- pe- whoever they are, right? Governments that enforce genocides will, you know, find the people that they're after and, and, and they get them. Um, but it's it's perhaps robust against disruption from the outside world. But most importantly, the key thing is a, not a defensive mentality, as we've been talking about, but rather let's just create a microeconomy that allows us to live as Christians. Uh, the kind of thing that doesn't demand, you know, that that is free from the demands that capitalism imposes, that the capitalist industrialist sort of approach imposes, that is free from the demands that this sort of atheistic materialist Marxist approach imposes, though both of course have the same roots in sort of this atheistic materialism, uh, but, but rather what is an authentic Christian economy of some sort of communion look like among people? And that can really only be done or at least begun at a local level of, of small communities. I think that's absolutely right. You have to, because economics just means at its root, it just means housekeeping. Ecos is the Greek word for house. And so you have to put your own house in order. Uh, both as a family and then as a community of families together, because it's just part of uh, living. We're, we're material creatures, and it's a wonderful thing. We're living in a material world, and, and we are a material community, or we're not a community at all. And so that that necessarily is going to involve economics, the material needs of people. The gospel is all-encompassing. It's not something separate from real life. Yeah, I was just uh, interviewing um, William T. Kavanaugh, and he was oh, talking it. about how if, if we, you know, if we are, you know, spending Sunday worshiping God mm-hmm. and then spending the rest of the week exploiting or competing with our neighbor, uh, there's a fundamental disconnect that will get us absolutely nowhere. Um, right. And that, you know, like I, I've interviewed, you know, quite a few communities by now, and many of them are very beautiful in different ways, but only a very few of them have any kind of economic, shared economic basis. I mean, a lot of them, you know, like they pool a certain amount of uh, resources to aid, you know, poorer members of the community. And that's, you know, a good start. Obviously, you need to start share something, you know. Um, but um, I, I interviewed uh, a Bruderhof community um, a few months ago. And, of course, they're like the best example of that kind of integrated economic life outside of a Catholic monastery that you're going to find. Um, the uh, But, yeah, the, the economic... Uh, question is at once it's one of the most difficult but also as as we've been talking about it it does seem in a sense fundamental yeah and it doesn't have to be that difficult though because i think there's 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 two things that make it complicated and nothing that's good should be complicated it can be complex but never should be complicated i think two things make it complicated one is the divorcing of community from the real physical proximity the experience of actually living beside each other. I'm not saying you got to live in the same house, the same karma complex, but a village is precisely people who live within, you know, half a kilometer of each other. You know, it's just, that's, that's what it is uh, because we're bodies, we're, we're human beings, our body creatures to live close to one another necessitates that you're going to be sharing, you're going to be buying and selling. I'm not saying that everything has to be held in common, but it certainly makes it easier for those things that are like the piazza or the grazing land or the mill or whatever you have that's held in common for everybody to use. It's certainly easier if you're geographically there and you only have a real community there. And the other thing is, then this is a danger that I see communities that even those that try to live close to one another to say that we actually have a real community. It's not just something that exists on the interwebs, but a real living community where you've got the people live in one place, but one goes to work at 3M, the other drives across town to work at uh, United Health, the other you know, goes goes over to work for the Ford plant, uh, you know, and somebody else is working remotely for a company in China for their clients in the UK. 
that is drawing you in other directions. You're not actually investing in the community. What you've created essentially is a 1950s suburb. Everybody lives in the same area, but you're just a bedroom community. You're not actually engaging right. in your daily work together. Uh, and so, you know, I was talking with a guy who's who's got you know this this nascent group of, of, of you know three or four small families together. That one of the things that they need to focus on right now is figuring out how they're going to invest in the real land that they're sitting on. And by invest, I don't mean capital investment. I mean like, what are you actually doing to work locally here? Are you growing your any of your own food? Are you working with the local goat herd who's, who makes cheese as the same way that they have in the, village, you know, the next hamlet over, the same way they have for hundreds of years or thousands of years for a line, uh, and, and buying their cheese instead of driving down to the Mega Mart grocery in the, ta- you know, in the proper city half hour away? Are, are you, what way are you really engaging in a local economy? Uh, and I think that's really important. Are you working remotely for some, somewhere else far away, the other side of the country, the other side of the continent? Or should you really be taking up some sort of, and I don't care if it's farming, if it's a craft, if it's business, heck, you could, you could be insurance salesman, I don't care what it is, but doing it locally is going to be very important because you have to be plugging that in. That's when you have a, a cycle. I know William Kavanaugh talks about this in some of his other works. I don't know if it came up in the interview, but the very idea that there's almost this cyclical nature of things that can ebb and flow, that flow out from the self and back in. And if it's a Christian community, oftentimes that's got the Eucharist at the center of it. And so there's an actually an economy of community that flows into the Eucharistic presence of the sacrifice in and out and among the community. You've got something that's really rooted in the land in a fully gospel way. Yeah, you know, that um, that idea of, you know, recreating a 1950s suburb, I think one of the uh, corroding aspects of the American experience on the imagination is that too often when we envision community, what we envision is like, oh yeah, the 50s. We had, <laughs> we had community in these suburbs. You know, like, of course, it's somewhat true that in the 50s, there was more communion, community in the suburbs, but it was still a very flawed model and it wasn't going to last. It was an interim stage uh, in the breakdown of community. Um, right. But I think you know, like looking around, I sometimes see projects that seem to be design, you know, like, so you're going to sleep in adjoining houses, you know, in this community and, and then, mm-hmm. you know, go about your routines. Um, and then the other thing, yeah, about, about relating to one another, it obviously has to be local. There has to be a local proximity because as you said, we are these embodied creatures and we can't really, um, we can't really have community, you know, like we can have some kind of shadow of a community o- online, but the goal has to be to move that into real life, sharing as much of life as possible with one another. And that will have to include work and all the other aspects of daily life. Um, in, in your book, and another point that, that struck me from uh, the beginning of your book is you're saying that, yeah. um, that you shouldn't, you were talking about culture and you were saying we shouldn't, when we're talking about culture, we shouldn't uh, mistake the flowers for the root nor the leaf for the vital seed. And so we should not set out to preserve the perishable and temporarily situated elements of a Western civilization that sprang from Christ. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little more? Yeah, that itself is not a direct quote, but a paraphrase of what Christopher Dawson said when we're talking about what, what actually constitutes Christian culture and how to distinguish sort of the, the essential core versus the various manifestations have taken. And I think, uh, as, as you've rightly pointed out, uh, in, in some of your articles, there's a tendency to cling to the, a lot of these superficial uh, aspects of, you know, whether somebody's looking at 
you know, mistakenly looking at something like the 1950s as ideal Christian society, which of course is, is not by any stretch of the imagination. Um, or, you know, somebody's idealistically looking back at, you know, the, the 15th century or the 12th century as sort of the ideal, and then they try and replicate these, these superficial level things, is that's not, that's, that's only ever going to be anachronistic. That's all, you're, you're never going to do better than LARPing. You could do full-time LARPing. There are people who do, there are Ren fairs that Renaissance festivals that go, yeah. you know, year round. <laughs> just, but you're, you're not, you're not doing something authentic. And, and so we need to, if we're going to revive something, we need to revive the vital seed and not just take the flower petals and try and plant those. They won't grow. They will rot. What you need to do is find the true seed and plant that. You can or take a, an authentic cutting from a branch, from a tree that is otherwise withered, but there's still a viable branch or viable root, and then plant that and cultivate that. When that tree grows, so that, so I'll, I'll take, I'll, we'll make it more explicit. I used to have a vineyard. I had to move my vineyard because we moved, not this move, a different move back in the day. Uh, and, and so I had to move my vines and what do you do? You know, you can't replicate the whole vine. If I were to just simply take, uh, the leaves or the grapes or stems and try to bring those over and plant them, they're essentially, they're, you know, stick them right in the ground. They're not going to survive. But what I had to do is then dig, dig the vine up by the roots. Uh, because let's say the land that where the ground where I had planted, it was actually sterile. Eventually the roots couldn't grow any further and the plant dies. There's enough of a vital life source in the midst of that root though. If I take that root and I bring that and I trim off all the other trappings, uh, certain things you can leave, certainly. There's, you have to leave some of the stem and the branches and all that. There has to be buds for the leaves eventually to grow on. But I take that root and then I can plant that in good soil. I can plant that again even if that root has been essentially in archives, in the archives for, for a couple of months, sitting in a garage, you know, basically in a, in a bucket of moist dirt in the garage over winter, I can take that and I can plant that in the ground. And that vine as it grows is not going to look exactly the same as the vine as it was in its original location. I've moved it to a new location, to a new time, even, it's, even after it's been dormant for a year or even two years. I can replant that and cultivate that with the right sort of TLC and, and, and create the, the ideal conditions, it can spring forth. And it'll, it'll have branches in new places. It'll still produce the same good fruit. It'll take time. It'll take seasons to produce really mature fruit again. But it will be able to do that. But it will look very differently. It'll have a different shape. And the grapes, the wine that comes from those grapes will taste differently because it is, in fact, in different soil. It's in different, it's breathing different air. It's in different soil. The water is different. It's going to have good wine eventually, but it will be different from the, its previous location. Yeah, it's a beautiful analogy. And I, uh, one thing uh, that I've sometimes come up with is this idea that, you know, like when you say you're preserving something, you only preserve things that are dead. You know, like mm -hmm. if, if, if something's being preserved, it means that for some reason it's no longer able to continue to maintain itself. And the best you can now do is, is to, you know, put it in a museum and take extra special care. But like the road is only downward with even with the best of care, things will slowly degrade. Even in the back of the fridge, things start to rot. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, preservation can often become kind of the metaphor instead of mm -hmm. instead of, you know, growth, which, of course, like there can be there can be um, cancerous or unwanted growth. Um, right. You know, like obviously no one wants to see mushrooms starting to sprout out of the trunk of their trees that they're trying to grow. 
Right. Some growths are are bad, but like the I think too often the conservative or the culture warrior because some growths are bad, some developments are actually decay. Mm-hmm. Um, because some developments are decay, they um, then try to say, all right, no development. We'll just keep it exactly as it is. Which, if you're dealing with a living thing, that means it will die, and then and then all the future mm-hmm. growths will indeed be decay once you have adopted that mentality. Right. I think it's absolutely right. Uh, one uh, one thing, uh, you know, like your book, of course, covers a lot, you know, a lot of different topics in the original Benedictine rule, and then you know tries to apply them to the modern world. Uh, just to to do a, a fairly quick summing up, what are some of the really key things that you think we should draw from the original Benedictine rule as we try to develop community? I think, for starters, we need to be awakened to the voice of the spirit. And that requires a degree of magnanimity in openness to the call for, to the call to greatness, to arise up. And this is in both the initial chapter of Benedict's rule and in the original Benedict adoption guidebook and in the concluding chapter of each, he begins with, you know, listen, my child to the, you know, hearken to the words of your father of the master and and let's listen to what the spirit has to say there should there needs to awaken in us and we need we need to cultivate an openness so that when the lord speaks to us today we do not harden our hearts but we can be uh, ignited with a flame for greatness and a greatness towards service uh, authentic humility to then respond to christ and it's this is a key thing that benedict identifies is to not shrink back like servants who refuse to follow our captain to glory. And so that there's a battle, but it's not a battle with the powers of this world. We need to be awakened to become ignited with the fire of the Holy Spirit, to fight a battle that is very much a spiritual battle. And it's a spiritual battle against the powers of a certain, you know, essentially the the powers of darkness against this tendency towards mammon, if you will, uh, powers of doubt, uh, despair, individualism. And these things all have their roots in our own hearts. And so then to do that, to fight that fight, we need Christ's grace and we need prayer. So we need to cultivate an interior prayer life, but just, and, and specifically to seek unceasing prayer as individuals, but to overcome our individualism, we need to re-engage in Christian liturgy and rediscover what that is. What does authentic Christian worship mean? What does it look like? Where can we find that? How can we cultivate that as Christians together as the body of Christ? That's on, I would say, the spiritual frame. I think on the material frame, we need to begin to think locally. Because if you want, like G.K. Chesterton also said elsewhere, if you want a thing to, the only way to make a thing living is to make it local, right? It has to be rooted in in a specific piece of ground. So you need to get rooted somewhere. It doesn't need to be where you live right now. You can move, right? God frequently calls people to traverse, you know, vast, you know, expanses of land to go to some place where he's called them to be. But to find a place and to really root into that place. And that's the key to Benedict. You know, St. Benedict talks about the key of the, the principle of stability, to be rooted into a place and involved here, here and now, serving Christ in this particular place, in these ways, and all the material things that flow from that. And to really begin to try then socially to, to I don't want to say see Christ in others, but to see the other as Christ and to serve each other in that way with reverence and humility. And there's an obedience that comes with that. And to seek out obedience, uh, somebody to be obedient to. And there's, in the Benedictine rule, there's this real genius way of the way that he talks about this, is obedience isn't only vertical, 
but it's also lateral. That is to say, members of the community are obedient to one another, and we're even obedient to our own commitments, the you know, fundamental obedience that each and every one of us has, even as a, you know, if you're a single person living in an apartment in the middle of the big city, uh, away from any community, you're obedient to certain commitments that you have. First of all, the obedience to Christ and the gospel and obedience to then other re certain relationships you may have. And I think those are important things to seek out. Now, those are all, all really great uh, lessons that we can learn from the, the Benedictine rule. I want, wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit more about the obedience question, because mm -hmm. it really seems in my, you know, discussions with other communities that that can be, that can make or break uh, the community, that there has to be a, a sense of authority and obedience. And at the same time, though, if, if it's done wrongly, it can generate a cult or, mm -hmm. or something unhealthy. Um, in what way, so like, of course, the Benedictine rule is envisioning a monastery of celibate monks who have made you know, a lifelong vow uh, to a certain community and to obey the abbot, um, which, though, of course, who is, of course, uh, elected by the monks. How should that translate into a more organic and somewhat more fluid community that's made up of married couples and people in the world? Um, because, you know, I, I've seen some attempts where this idea of, you know, like, abbatal authority is is perhaps imitated in too literal of a sense, which can can, you know, like it's, it's interesting. It kind of seems like the communities I've interviewed, there's sort of this break that the ones who decide to have only celibate members can have a lot mm -hmm. more structure and um, you know, authority. And mm -hmm. ones that have families have always had to try eventually modify it more in the direction of a little more autonomy for the members. Do you have any thoughts on that kind of division? Yeah, I think, I think there's certainly a natural division where, um, you know, a community of celibates is, is fundamentally of a different materially speaking, uh, is, is really on a different plane because they've got a different kind of uh, availability and different kinds of responsibility. They don't, you don't have, um, you're, you're not in the state of matrimony, you don't have a spouse, you don't have children and those kinds of, uh, those, those relationships, those prior commitments. And so there's certain things that you can do in a, in a more direct and explicit way, um, which is why, I mean, that's, that's just that. But Remembering that St. Benedict is also taking, he's not just inventing this, he's taking as a model, obviously previous, prior monasticism as it developed in the previous few hundred years prior to him, but also real living communities of human beings, of families already living in, in the world. You know, he's taking, you know, a lot of what's in here, socially speaking, is modeled on the semi-autonomous family estate or hacienda uh, in, in the countryside that this essentially a small village in its own right, composed of different people, attaches of a great family. And by family, we might think more like a clan, you know, a small clan, something like this, group of families. Um, and so there is a structure of obedience there that you can have among members of a, 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 a community of different families. In fact, you know, I live under a very strict regime of obedience in the village that I live right now. There are certain rules that one does not transgress. Uh, you know, there are laws that are laid down. There's a city charter for how you, know, you have to have a license to do certain things. Um, if, you know, you want to sell things on this, if you want to be a street vendor, you have to get a permit to do that. Um, you know, when the police say, you know, there's a curfew after 10 p.m., you know, okay, you're, because of health reasons, you know, you're trying to at least contain, you know, the epidemic or something, reasonable response is to obey it, right? There's rules, there's there's laws in place in, in any human, in really good human society in this way. And so I think there's a danger in looking at 
the kind of obedience that a monastery has, the structures and rules and the way that that's enforced in a monastery and trying to impose that on a community of families. Um, and again, that's why I say take, take as a functional model a healthy living village. And even the monastic, uh, when, we, when we say, oftentimes the people I talk to, when they think of well, you know, obedience within a monastery, it looks a certain way. What the, the, the imaginary that they have in their mind is something out of like the 18th, 19th century revival of monasticism, which is, was in many ways an artificial thing after the French Revolution. It, it failed to connect with its authentic roots. And so that, even that isn't, isn't rec- wouldn't be recognizable to St. Benedict as what he was creating. But something, there's already in St. Benedict something much more organic. There's an authority of the abbot who's a monastic figure, but the obedience is just as much due laterally to my felt to the fellow to the other members of the monastic community, fundamentally as obedience to Christ. And so what does that look like? That looks like seeking out opportunities to serve one another, anticipating one another, and showing honor, as St. Paul says in his letter. That's the foundation of it, is obedience to Christ in the organic ways that make sense for a community like that. Yeah, that's, that's a really wonderful way of putting it. And I really like how you're emphasizing that, you know, Benedict didn't just dream up a new idea because that can be a, a problem, I think, in the in the world of community building. People just sitting down, and you're like dreaming up a utopian reality disconnected from anything that's existed before or now. Um, I remember talking to a, a community that's been around, I think, for 50 years now. And the leader was saying to me, you know, he said the new interesting community is great, but he said it, it disturbs him that like they're not talking to existing communities, looking at monasteries, looking at, you know, like the things that have been tried and the things that have not worked in some cases, in, in his case, uh, you know, like that, that there can be this kind of like, oh, I'm good. And, and then if we see Benedict as someone who you know, like sat down and just dreamed up something out of his own imagination, uh, that that's not a good, uh, it's not a good fit as you're pointing out. Um, you know, as we're, we're drawing near here to the end of our time, uh, do you have any practical suggestions for how someone who wants to help spur the development of a local Christian community, what are some practical steps that they might uh, pursue? I think, uh, I mean, one is start, you, like, you have to be a person of prayer. You have to have a heart of prayer, pursue prayer of the heart and find somebody who's wise to be a spiritual father or mother. The, the church fathers are very clear on this. Um, that that's just a requirement for every Christian, but especially if you're undertaking the great work, the great burden of spurring the creation of something like this, there's, there's a great risk of going astray because of our own sins and vices and to place yourself under obedience to somebody helps curb and also helps free you to do what you need to be doing and not get distracted by the whims, uh, and, and uh, the, the passing whims that we have from day to day and, and to help clarify our insight. And that also is, is a way to orient us towards looking at what exists, like you were saying, what's worked and what doesn't work. And it's p- worth pointing out uh, that Benedictine monastics, like St. Benedict's rule has been governing communities for over 1,500 years. That's a pretty good track record, you know? So beginning to go back to the source, look at what it's all about. Um, you know, the original Benedict Adoption Guidebook has my attempts at uh, spelling out how some of that can be applied based on the research into just historical human Christian community period in civilizations uh, and also living communities still today and how that they do how they do that. 
Um, but I think finding other people that aren't necessarily like-minded because there's that risk of going into a click, but try and find people who are seeking the same kind of thing. That is to say, seeking the same way of life. Um, and so it's, it's, first of all, we have to have, there's a motivation thing, purify your intentions, seek a common way of life together, living the gospel radically. Practically, you need to begin looking at rooting yourself locally somewhere very quickly, and it can move. But you need to have something pinned down, again, so that you can be more free and more authentically involved in a place. And so it, it, you know, it, something can start virtually where you're meeting other people, you know, especially if we're in sort of a pandemic lockdown. Uh, you know, it's the only way to connect with other people is, is through the telephone or through the computer. But you need to move pretty quickly to real living thick community uh, in that way. Um, and not to be too quick to rush into enforcing things, but try and serve Christ and the other people. Um, I think that's 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 really it. Seek out other communities. I think the the, the one thing that I found, just as it, it occurs to me, that has come up again and again in in different people that I've talked to that have read the Benedict Option are looking for something. Is that a lot of people are looking to find something. They're looking to find an ideal community or any community for that matter. The important thing is that if this if that's on your heart to do, if you see the signs of the times, as it were, if you feel inspired to do something, you're, we're living in a generation where for 99% chance, you need to begin to look to found something, not to look to find something. Uh, diversity is great. We need lots of different initiatives and they're going to look different. And we don't need to be replicating each other or joining one another in some sort of meta corporation. Uh, but each community should be local. Each should be, there should be many of them. It should be local, it should be flourishing, and should be rooted in prayer. Thanks so much, Cameron. I, I really appreciate that. And as a closing note here, I'll say that I, I really appreciated the last, um, I think it was the very last, it was one of the concluding essays, I think it was the very last one in your book, where you talk about how each of us has you know, a little bit of earth, whether literally or metaphorically, that we have to cultivate for the glory of God, and that we should you know, take on that challenge to look around ourselves and ask ourselves what what God wants us to do to cultivate this bit of ground for his glory. So thanks again, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Malcolm. It's been a blessing.